Let's start by reading the text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we dissect this text together. Lord, thank you that uh, you bring about our salvation, but you also bring about our transformation. You have not just left us to figure out your commands and how to live them by ourselves. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to see that in this text this morning and help us to walk away more transformed, more um, transformed into the likeness of Christ. As a result of our time today, may it show in our lives this week. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Um, We are a few weeks into school, and I know um, all of us are kind of, if if you have kids or you are in school, we've had the weirdest beginning of a school year that we've ever had. Um, A few weeks ago, right before um, our kids started, they're in Alpine School District, a few weeks ago, right before we started, we got a list of all of the COVID rules in the mail, along with some some extra videos about what was going to be expected. And so Joel's reading through those, and I'm sitting there listening, and I found myself, in in many cases, and and let me just preface all this by saying, Um, everybody's doing the best they can with this thing. Nobody really, really knows what to do. Everybody's trying their best. So this isn't a slight against anybody. I found myself, though, as I'm hearing her reading the rules, some of them I'm like, okay, good. That's, that's, I think we should do that. Others I'm going, what? That's going to work? Or why do we have to do that? Or not we, I'm thinking about my kids. Why do they have to do that? And I found myself just naturally bristling under some of these rules because I'm like, oh boy, I I don't agree with that or I don't don't see it that way. And what it did as as I was looking at this text, I started thinking about that and it revealed for me again, just a really great example. In fact, this whole, the whole thing around COVID and masks, et cetera, I think is kind of revealing this um, in a unique way. We have a love-hate relationship with, rule, with lists of rules, right? If you are a conformist, you find that rules provide you some really clear guardrails for knowing you know, whether or not you're in compliance, right? If you're, if you're that, that type of a person where you're just like, I just want to know what I've got to do. That way I know I'm good, right? If you are a non-conformist, you look at those rules as frustrating because in your heart, you know that you naturally rebel against those. Perfect example, you walk, across, you walk by a body of grass like we have outside and you see a sign that says, stay off the grass. Don't you just want to go like that? And you're looking at me like, you're a terrible person. Like, I don't ever think of that. 
I just want to do that. Just because it says I shouldn't. If you're a nonconformist, that's kind of where your heart goes because you know that internally you can't keep all these rules. But if we're, if we're all honest, though, there are at least two more deeply entrenched struggles, realities at work within each of us that no adherence to or avoidance of rules can fix. One is the reality that all of us, all of us know, whether or not we want to admit it, we all know this. We are unable to keep all of the rules. We can't do it. You know it, I know it. Second, our constantly mixed motives in keeping the rules. In other words, we, we know that our motives are never truly pure. We know that even if we are looking at the rules and saying, okay, I understand what these are and I'll do them, we know that internally we, we never have pure motives completely about following through on those rules. Mask mandates have exposed this internal struggle in a really unique way, right? You have those who are following the rules. Matt and Colleen, you're doing a fantastic job right now. And um, you often find, especially on social media, people who are the rule followers berating everybody else who aren't following the rules. And then you have those who will not let the government dictate how they live their lives. And so they're going to not conform. They're going to disregard those mandates. Regardless of whether or not you adhere or avoid, I don't know of a single person, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know of a single person who really, really wants to wear a mask. <laughs> and it, again, brings out that struggle that we have with that ever-present love-hate relationship with rules or commands. How do verses 11 through 15 reshape our hearts in relationship to commands? And most specifically, we've come through several weeks now in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, where we have been exhorted, we've been commanded, Multiple weeks of exhortation, just a brief review, directed at different groups within Christ's church. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, church leaders, servants. All we, we've heard, if you've been here with us, and if you haven't, I'm, I'm sorry, you could go back and read really quick while I'm talking. You could read verses 1 through 10 and see all of them. We've been, one week after another, hearing these commands. And you may have, as, you, as you've been listening to them, you've maybe going, been going, man, I don't know if I can do that. I don't live up to that very well. And you may find yourself going, man, how do I fix this about myself? These commands, let's remember, these commands spring from the aim of Paul's ministry. If we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, um, Matt preached about this several weeks ago. What he says in verse 1 is that his ministry is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. So these commands are coming from Paul's ministry given by the Holy Spirit. So we know they're there for a reason. We know they're good. But in the next several verses, we, uh, Danny preached on this several weeks ago in verses 10 through 16, we know that Paul has also already called out those who would tie works or tie rule following or command following to faith in Christ as, prerequisite, as a prerequisite for salvation. 
If you were here, you remember Danny speaking of it in terms of Jesus plus. You had those who were saying, oh yeah, you got to trust in Jesus, but you've also got to keep the law. And not just keep the law because that's your new identity as a follower of Jesus. No, you've got to keep the law in order to either um, earn, keep, or enhance your standing with God. That doesn't work. That's not the gospel. And so it's as though Paul parks, well, the Holy Spirit through Paul, parks verses 11 through 15 in chapter 2 right where it is to remind the people of God again that godliness or doing good, as we've read in verses 1 through 10, springs not from a need to earn or keep or enhance God's favor. It comes from our new identity, a new identity built on God's grace. We need this here. Just like we needed it in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, just like we'll need it again in chapter 3, that Danny will, will preach on, I believe, next week. Because we all need to hear this message over and over because we are all gospel amnesiacs. And if you're here today and this is the first time you've maybe ever heard the term gospel, or you've never really understood it, maybe you've heard it before, you need this today. And not because I say so, but because God is saying this is what will transform you. True transformation only runs on grace. That's our, that's our idea this morning. I'm going to give it to you up front. I'm not going to hide it from you till the very end. We're not going to be inductive today. We're going to be deductive. True transformation only runs on grace. Grace is one of those terms. Before we, we look through how that is unpacked here in the text, grace is one of those terms we often throw around, and you may or may not really have ever thought about what does that actually mean? Not to insult anybody's intelligence, but when we're talking about grace, we're talking about God's unmerited kindness and favor. So when I'm speaking about grace, and I use that term often this morning, that's what we're talking about. That's how scripture speaks of it. God's unmerited, it's unearned, kindness and favor. Let's think about in this text how, how true transformation only runs on grace and how Paul explains that here. First of all, I want to think for a moment about the effectiveness of this grace, the effectiveness of this grace. If we go back to verse 11, let's see this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When he's speaking about the appearance of grace, he's speaking about the first coming of Christ. We see that in verse 11, then in verse 14 again, it speaks about Jesus and the fact that he has redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for himself. So when Paul is talking about the appearance of this grace, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's unmerited favor. If we were to go over to chapter 3, we'd see this reiterated again in verses 4 through 7. I'm just going to read it. You don't have to jump over there. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's grace is inextricably bound with the person of Jesus Christ. The effectiveness of this grace is seen in the fact that God would effect salvation 
through the sending of his only son. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. And if we were to go back to, say, Isaiah chapter 53, if you've read the scriptures often or, or read it at all, you may recall that text. It's a poignant text pointing to the future Messiah, pointing to Jesus. And after Isaiah speaks about how the Messiah will pay for sins and how he will then be exalted, he finishes by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God effected salvation for sinners like you and me through Jesus, through his only son. So Jesus is the embodiment of God's, God's grace. Second, the appearance of grace was planned beforehand. In, in speaking about the effectiveness of God's grace, think about the fact that it was never a reactive measure by God. This was planned before the ages began. If we were to go back um, a letter to 2 Timothy, we would see in, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because his, of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, the coming of Jesus wasn't a reaction to how bad things had gotten in the world. God wasn't standing back going, I did not anticipate these people being this awful. So I have to think of something really quick. You go. That's not, what, that's, not, that, that, that's not this at all. God, before creation ever existed, had already purposed that he would affect salvation through Jesus. He planned it beforehand. He was not taken off guard by our sin. The coming of Jesus was tied to God's purpose and his kindness, and that planned before the foundation of the world. But then think about this in terms of this grace and its effectiveness. The appearance of grace is extended, as Paul says here, to all people. But it is proven effective for those who trust in Christ. We see that at the beginning of verse 12. End of verse 11, grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But then he immediately goes to training us. Goes from this to this. Training us. If we jump down to verse 14, he uses us again twice. He says, who gave himself for us to redeem us. So this grace is seen to be effective. It's, it's offered to all. It's effective for some. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10 supports this. This is, again, Paul speaking. He's just writing to Timothy instead of Titus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And now we may read that and go, I don't know what to do with that. Don't worry. This has been a debate throughout church history. We could spend all day arguing about this. We're not going to. I don't want to. I don't think you want to either. We would all walk out of here mad at each other because we really don't know the whole answer to this because we don't have God's mind. But we tend to think of ourselves. When we start to look at this and say, man, maybe God's unjust. He saves some, he doesn't others. We tend to think of ourselves all as equally deserving of God's grace and may tend to think that in some way God is unjust for not saving all of us. But that's why it's grace. <laughs> 
It's unmerited kindness and favor. The right question is not, why would God save some and not others? The right question is, why would God save any of us? That's the question. One one of my favorite uh, songwriters is, his name is Josh Garrels. I don't know if any of you know him. You should. But one of my favorite lyrics in his song is, the good man dies and the bad man thrives. And Jesus cries because he loves them both. We are all castaways in need of, we are all deserving of hell. And if you don't believe that, just look at your thoughts and your actions and your reactions just from about maybe 6 or 7 a.m. this morning until now. We are all undeserving. The unmerited kindness and favor of God is effective in that it saves sinners like us who are totally undeserving. But one last thought here in regard to this effectiveness of grace. The, the unmerited kindness of God is shown in Christ, that, that is shown in Christ is not only effective in, in working salvation for those who believe, it is effective in bringing about their transformation. We're going to unpack this a little bit more in a minute. But what Paul says, as soon as he goes from uh, bringing salvation for all people to training us, he then follows that with training us for what? Negatively, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Positively, training us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. The unmerited kindness of God shown in Christ is not just an offer of salvation. It is effective to bring about the total transformation of the one who trusts in Christ. That's great news. It does not just bring us salvation. That would be good enough. We'd be like, okay, good. Thank you just for that. But instead it also, at the very root of our identity, totally transforms us so that we can obey when he says, give up ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, just like he said in verses 1 through 10 to all of us. That is not just effective. That goes beyond our wildest expectations. I don't, I'm weird, so I don't know why my brain went here as I was thinking about this, but um, have you ever watched infomercials and seen like products on those infomercials, sometimes you can't avoid them. You're watching some program and it comes on a commercial. And they show all of the ways this new product you've never heard of does everything for you that no other product before it could do. And it's only 19.95. And you watch it, you go, wow. Sometimes it catches you. That's how they stay in business. You're like, whoa, I didn't know it could do that. Anybody remember the sham wow? Did you know you can get two large ShamWows plus two more large ShamWows plus a ShamWow mask for $19.95 plus processing, separate processing. So it probably ends up about $195. But <laughs> before Joelle and I were married, we were at, uh, Joelle's from Minneapolis. We were, um, I was with her family. We went to the Minnesota State Fair. If you've ever been to a state fair, it's great. Nothing compared to the Minnesota State Fair. Um, but along with all everything deep fried that you could possibly imagine under the sun, they have all these different exhibits of, of people demonstrating their products and getting you to buy them, right? It's a great opportunity because you have a gazillion people coming through there for multiple days. I walked by one, it was a ShamWow demonstration. Wow. <laughs> that thing can hold up to like 10, 10 times its weight in liquid. 
I don't think it actually can, but that one that guy was using could. And he was demonstrating, and I walked away going, man, I need one of those ShamWows. It exceeded my expectations, dramatically exceeded it. I don't want to trivialize the grace of God by comparing it to a ShamWow. But what God has done for us in Christ this unmerited favor that he has shown us is not just effective in making us maybe somewhat better people. And it isn't a nice story to teach us good morals. The grace of God brings about the total transformation of his people. Our ability to live in line with the exhortations given throughout the letter to Titus, and specifically in these verses preceding 11 down through 14 and 15, that's inextricably linked to the effectiveness of God's grace. The ability, that ability is not tied to our ability to earn or keep or enhance God's favor in any way. God brings about both your salvation in Christ and your ability to live in line with the values of Christ through grace, through his effective, unmerited kindness, and favor. That's beyond our wildest expectation. He brings that transformation about in us because he's kind and he's true to his ultimate purpose for us. So that's, that's the effectiveness of this grace. But let's think about, I just said it, let's think about the purpose of this grace that's shown in the text as well. The first purpose, and this goes back to the very end of the text that Matt preached through last week, verses 9 and 10. First of all, the practical outworking of God's grace through good works, just like he says in, in um, 11 down through 14, training us to renounce the sinfulness and put on the self-control, the godliness and uprightness. The practical outworking of God's grace through good works enhances the message of the gospel. Go back to, uh, to verses 9 and 10 in this text. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I read that in the NIV. You might have been reading in the ESV going, that doesn't match. The reason I did, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. ESV, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It enhances the message of the gospel when people who are not followers of Jesus see in our lives outworkings of grace, see us training by, put, by putting off worldliness and worldly passions and by putting on self-control, uprightness, and godliness. The, effect, the, the um, effectiveness of God's grace is not only related to our salvation from hell or our future with God in eternity, although it is related to those. We see that in verse 13. We're waiting for the appearing of Christ. We saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 2 when we're looking for, forward to eternal hope. The effectiveness of God's grace is shown through the real change that it brings about in the lives of those who have been saved, and that has an evangelistic purpose. He says, when you are following God and training in righteousness, Others around you look at it and go, hmm, that's different. I don't have that. It adorns the gospel of Christ. So that's one of the purposes. The second purpose is that the transformation of our hearts 
resulting in behavioral change is the fulfillment of the promise of God. What do I mean by that? If we were to go back to the Old Testament, we don't have time to unpack all of this. But if we were to go back to the Old Testament, we would see in the the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both prophets speaking about the coming of the new covenant. We're actually going to celebrate the new covenant this morning when we partake in the Lord's Supper together. Jesus inaugurated, he began this new covenant, a new promise for his people. And this new covenant was pronounced by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it is a covenant, is a promise of God. This is God promising. I'm going to read these for you briefly. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The new covenant, the new promise given by God, appearing in the person of Christ, who is the embodiment of God's grace, that promised forgiveness and heart transformation. This is God keeping his word. The gospel is God keeping his word. The training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to instead live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself, as we'll see, as we see down in verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works has all been done to fulfill God's promise. He said, I'm going to fix your hearts. I'm not just going to fix your behavior. I'm not going to make you more moral. I'm not going to make you nicer people. I'm going to make you brand new people. And that only happens at our heart, at the the level of our heart. We talked about that struggle, the real struggle that we have between a love and hate relationship with rules. That's because our hearts are torn. We sing that song often, come thou found of every blessing. And we sing that phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. prone to leave the God I love. Our problem at the root is at our hearts, not just our behavior. That's all symptom. God promised that he would fix us at the heart level and the gospel, the appearing of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ is his answer of, yep, I kept my promise. The ultimate reality that is our inability to live up to the standard of perfection that God has set has met its match in G, has met its match in God's grace. We saw the effectiveness of God's grace in effectively saving undeserving sinners like us, even though it has been offered to the world. But now we've seen its purpose to enhance the beauty of the gospel and 
to keep God's promise that he would bring about true heart change for his people and not just behavior modification. He would grant us a new identity that would be displayed in good works. God, through Christ, has provided the solution for our deepest problem. And so finally, let's think about Christ. Thought about the effectiveness of this grace, the purpose of this grace. Now let's think about the giver for a minute. Because all of this is bound up in him. All of this is bound up in the person of Jesus. First of all, let's think about his identity here. And Paul draws out a very specific, very powerful aspect of Christ's identity that we need to think about for a moment here. We've already seen the connection between the appearance of God's grace and the person identity of Jesus Christ, right? Paul appears, though, in verse 13 to zero in on a critical aspect of his identity. Now, we're going to talk about the deity of Jesus right now for a second. This is not the only text in the scripture. We don't hang all of our belief on the, the, the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God. We don't hang it all on this text. But this text draws it out. As we're looking at this, don't think that the entire doctrine hangs just on this text. It hangs on multiple texts throughout the scriptures to show that Jesus is in fact God. But Paul, I think, using a very specific grammatical structure, not just in English, in original language. When he wrote this in Greek, he wrote it in a specific way to call something out about Jesus' identity that is, that is critical. Verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may have read over that before and say, okay, great. Yeah, he's talking about Jesus. Have you ever stopped and looked at how he words that? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does this mean the appearing of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ? Or does this mean the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? It may seem like a very minimal nuance. This is really, really important. We've already seen reference in the preceding text in verses 9 through 10 in in chapter 1. Um, Paul speak about God our Savior. But how should we take the reference here? I think Paul is intentionally wording, and it's not just me. This isn't coming from me. This is actually how he grammatically stated it. He's intentionally wording this using specific grammar to speak of Jesus, not only as our Savior, but as God. Let that sink in for a moment, because let's think for a second about the ramifications of the fact that he is not just our Savior, but he's God, our Savior. The author of this grace, this unmerited kindness, is God himself. And the giver of this grace, purchased through crucifixion, death, and resurrection, is also God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The reason this is so important, we cannot have a savior who isn't also God. He can't be a God. He cannot be a lesser God. He cannot be in some way divine, but not equal with the Father and the Spirit. We have no salvation if he isn't God. And we have no salvation if he isn't God, the self-existent, eternal, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-powerful God. Not a God who was once a man self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign. If we do not have that, we do not have a Savior, and this is the dumbest meeting you could ever attend. The Savior has to not only be Jesus, he has to be our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Because that is how he can affect not only salvation for himself in, res- in resurrecting from the dead, he can, he can buy us back from the power of sin. If he would not have been God, he would have had to pay for his own sin because he wouldn't be perfect and he wouldn't have been able to rise again from the dead. We would all have no salvation and no hope. But instead, because he is God, he could be perfect. He could stand in our place. He could die and take the penalty for the sin that we deserve on himself. And then he could rise again from the dead. He cannot do that if he isn't God. But because he is, we now have good news. His identity is not only Savior, he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then think finally about his gift. Paul, Paul shows us two aspects of this in this text. First of all, redemption. Redemption is also another one of those terms that sometimes we throw around, but we may not know exactly what it means. Just like grace. Redemption or, or to redeem is to buy back. It's not to buy back from Satan. We weren't Satan's. He's buying us back from the power of sin, and he speaks of that. He speaks of that here. He gave himself for us to redeem us negatively from all lawlessness, and positively, just like he said back in eleven and twelve, positively to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We've seen this theme over and over and over again of good works in Titus, right? We're going to continue to see it. Doing good, doing good, good works, etc. He bought us back to not only free us from that power of sin, but then to give us a brand new identity, a heart transformation that actually wants to do what he wants us to do. That makes us zealous for good works. But then with that, he has provided a hope that fuels all of that transformation, that fuels all of that training, that fuels all of that desire for good works. If we were to go back to verse, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, in the hope of eternal life. That's, that's part of Paul's, not only his message, but his mission, is to fuel um, the, the people of God and their hope in eternal life. In chapter 3, verse 7, I'm going to pop over there and read that really quickly. He says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Our text in verse 13, he says, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the hope that is associated with that. So he brings about redemption. He brings about this buying back from the power of sin and making us zealous, but then he, with it, provides a great hope that fuels all of that. Hope in eternal life is hope in the appearing of Jesus. And he says it's a blessed hope. Blessed means happy. That's a happy or a joyful hope that is intrinsically connected to the person and work of Jesus and his return. Hope is not a cross-your-fingers leap of faith. We're going, oh, I sure hope this is true. It is a confident expectation because we've been recipients of that redemption. We've been recipients of that heart transformation. And that then gives us great confidence when he says he's coming back. And it fuels us when we go to obey him and train in godliness and train in self-control and train in uprightness and train in doing good works and that from an internal zeal. The training that we're undergoing now is bound to the waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The reality of Christ's return shows that our renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions will be replaced by something infinitely more glorious. Don't feel like what you're giving up right now will result in a net loss for you. If we're finding our satisfaction or we're trying to find our satisfaction and our joy in worldliness and and ungodliness now, in all of the, 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 the trappings and the trinkets that the world can offer us, it's as though we're eating junk food and avoiding the best possible meal we could imagine. And you know this is true. Even if you're living in the midst of it right now and you're happy in it, you're happy pursuing sin. Fill in the blank with what that is. Power, love of money, sex, approval, um, the, just the desire to avoid any type of disapproval from those around you. Fill in the blank with what you're filling your mouth with right now, and it will all turn to gravel and you know it. And so do I. I think one of the reasons Paul is pointing this out, why the Holy Spirit is pointing out the reality that waiting for the appearing of, of Christ and this training is to remind us we're not giving up anything. We have eternal joy to inherit in the person of Jesus. So if you're struggling today with giving up that sin, maybe you're struggling, period, to just come to Jesus because you're going, ah, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and put on self-control uprightness and godliness that sounds like the most boring life ever i've got to give up all of this christ is saying i'm holding for you an eternal weight of glory (laughs) you're feasting on crumbs and i'm going to give you the filet mignon waiting and training are inextricably bound together because jesus is constantly reminding us of what's to come the best is yet to come and it's all tied up in him and if he would do what he has done and that is come to earth and die standing in our place to do it, then can you imagine what he's got prepared for us? One of the biggest lies we tend to believe about following Jesus is that in some way, we lose out on those things that are truly enjoyable about this life. But friends, no amount of pleasure in this world can make up for or measure up to the blessed hope that is provided by Jesus. Every other pleasure is a cheap knockoff of knowing him and the reality of his soon We've seen the effectiveness of his grace. We've seen the purpose of his grace. We've seen now the giver of that grace. How do we respond to that in our last couple minutes? First of all, has God's grace had its effect in your life? Has it been effective in your life? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and it is made effective in the lives of sinners like you and me. So stop holding out and trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus today. You have people all around you who would love to talk to you about that afterward. If you have additional questions, please trust in Jesus. His grace is effective. It does bring about transformation. Second, though, if you are a believer, if you are following Jesus, are you experiencing heart transformation or are you bringing about just behavior modification. Because in some way or other, you're thinking, I have to keep this favor from God or I'm going to lose it. Or I have to enhance it in some way. Or maybe you feel to some degree like you still have to earn it. Friends, this text shows us there is nothing that we can do. It's unmerited. It's unmerited 
earned favor from God. Lay your deadly doings down at the feet of Jesus and rest. Maybe for the first time in a long time, rest in the fact that your identity in Christ wasn't purchased by you and it's not kept by you. Jesus is good enough. And how do you do that? You don't do that by, okay, I got to do a bunch of good work so that I can earn my rest. (laughs) Fill your vision with Christ because you will find in him all of the perfection we're falling short of attaining. How do you do that? Some very practical things. Go read and reread and reread the Gospels. If you're not reading the Bible right now on a regular basis, go pick up the Gospels. That would be an awesome place to start and reread it and reread it and reread it. You will find the heart of Christ for you there. Fill your earbuds with songs about Jesus. Fill your shelves or your Kindle queue with books about how Jesus' heart for you. Every morning, make a practice of preaching the gospel to yourself. Put that on your calendar. Put that on your outlook. Put that on your Gmail calendar. Remind yourself in the morning, preach the gospel to myself. It works because if you and I, we always have the tendency to try to keep that favor from God and it can't be kept by us. And so we constantly need to remind ourselves that this is unmerited favor. You know what that does? It will, it will start showing up in your life. It'll start training you for godliness and uprightness and righteous living. But you have to fill your vision with Christ. If you need more ideas about that, happy to talk about that. There are many around here who would love to talk to you about that. It's one of the best things about community. We can talk to each other about how Jesus has, has been made more powerful in our lives through filling our vision with him. Then finally, are you training in giving up on godliness and worldly passions and in putting self con- on self-control, uprightness, and godliness? Take an honest assessment of your life today. Ask a close believer friend to assess your life for you today. Say, do you actually see fruit of the gospel at this grace penetrating, transforming my heart? Could those who don't know Christ say about your life that it adorns the gospel or makes it even more attractive? If it doesn't, repent and believe the gospel again. Fill your mind and heart, just like we said above, fill your mind and heart with scripture and music and preaching and teaching that points you to the appearing of Christ. Because he says here, he promises us here, as we look toward the coming of Christ, it fuels our training now. So if you don't see that evidence in your life right now, again, the answer is fill our vision with Christ because he is the embodiment of grace. And true transformation only runs on grace. Matt's going to come here in just a second. We are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is the perfect opportunity for us to remind ourselves of what we have in Christ, of this grace appearing for us. It's in fact a command from Christ to remember and to to look forward to his appearing. So let's do this together here in just a moment and participate in in a memorial that Christ has set before us to basically live out together what this text has called upon us to do. Let's pray before we do that. Lord, thank you that you are um, the Savior that we need. We are completely undeserving of you, though. Remind us of our undeserving status to humble us, but then remind us through 
our participation together in the Lord's Supper, that your grace is what has affected our salvation and your grace is what transforms us and prepares us for the return of your Son. We pray these things through his name. Amen.